0: singing, what a joy to know that we stand forgiven at the cross. James chapter number 2, James chapter number 2, this is a chapter that we see some very practical application as Pastor James deals with an issue that he is burdened about, that he is concerned about for these 12 tribes who are scattered abroad in the immediate context. But obviously, by the inspiration of the Word of God and preserved for us today, this truth, these applications, are so apropos for us right now in the 21st century. We know that James has emphasized throughout the first chapter that we are to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. We really focused on that and kind of drove that point home The last couple of weeks. We know that from verse 19, we're to be swift to hear, quick, swift to hear the word of God. We're to be slow to speak. We're to handle the word of God properly. And we're to be slow to wrath. We're not to resent the word of God. We're to receive the word of God and to allow the word of God to dwell in us richly. We see this pattern of knowing, receiving, being attentive to the word of God. Being quick to hear. We we see this pattern of knowing, being, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly to form Christ-like character. And then doing. Knowing, being, and doing. We see this pattern all throughout the latter half of chapter 1 in particular. This doing now of living out the truth of the word of God. Good biblical habits, putting the truth into practice. And he concluded at the end of chapter 1 that our religion, our faith, is in vain if we don't bridle our tongue. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. The practice of his faith is in vain. We betray our relationship with the Word of God. We betray our relationship with God If we don't bridle our tongue, he then talked about pure religion and undefiled before God and the father is this verse 27 to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction to serve and to give to those who cannot give back in return. Being willing to serve the Lord, to give of ourselves in the service of the Lord, in the sacrifice for the Lord, knowing that we may not ever receive Anything in return, earthly speaking, knowing that our reward, our treasure is in heaven, and that is who we ultimately are serving and giving for, for the glory of the Lord, whether we receive any kind of earthly reward or not. We also should be doers of the word in keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. So he is dealing with this fact of worldliness, He's concerned about these 12 tribes scattered abroad, his fellow Jewish believers, and in turn, us as believers, that we not be tainted, that we not be stained, that we not be soiled by the world, the world's thoughts, the world's values, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, then we begin chapter number two, We see that James is going to deal with another area that we can have a vain practice of our religion, of our faith, where we can betray our relationship with God and his word. And it's an area that we don't often think of as a major sin or a big sin, and yet it can creep into our lives, sometimes very subtly. And before long, we find ourselves betraying our relationship with God, not being a doer of the word in this area. He says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. James addresses this issue of being a respecter of persons, of partiality, of favoritism. We might even refer to it as bias or prejudice. Prejudism, bias, partiality. They are sinful attitudes that were an issue that James is addressing with the early church, but are they not problematic even in our culture today? In Bible times, the Jews, they particularly dislike the Samaritans. We know that Jesus would witness to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, And that would have been considered culturally unacceptable because the Jews would often go around Samaria. They did not even recognize the Samaritans as worthy of their travel, even. They saw them as half-breeds, having intermarried with the Assyrians. The Jews struggled with prejudice, with bias. They disliked the Samaritans. What about Christian Jews that struggled with assimilating the Gentiles into the church? There were some barriers to overcome in Acts chapter 10, Peter, Cornelius, and that chapter deals with some of that. And James himself as the leader in the church at Jerusalem, as the pastor there, he had to deal with this in Acts 15 and how to incorporate the Gentiles into the church and the The fact that the ceremonial law had been fulfilled in Christ and was no longer to be practiced, yet the moral law remained, and how to make practical application of that, and to include the Gentiles in the the church, that together, as Jews and Gentiles, as fellow believers, they were one in Christ. So we know that there were some prejudices, there were some biases, there was partiality, that was even, in some cases, ethnically or racially related, that was being dealt with by Pastor James in this great epistle. Today, we know, we see it in the headlines, we see it in the news, we recognize that there are biases, that there are favoritisms, prejudices. Some of it is based on race, economic status, social status, physical appearance. There's all kinds of selfish, superficial, and can I say just plain sinful reasons that people have biases and prejudices and show favoritism toward one group or another. It just seems that people are divided up in so many ways today. And sometimes it even creeps into the church. A dominant theory in our culture today, I dealt with it a little bit, last Sunday in Sunday school, but critical theory, it dominates the world of academia, politics, has even gotten into our culture and systems and institutions of education, and even in some subtle and some not-so-subtle ways, it's gotten into the church and into the thinking of so-called believers. Sadly, too often, relationships are not according to the truth, excuse me, John, in 3rd John, he talked about his relationship with Gaius, and he talked about them having a good friendship, a godly friendship that was according to the truth. It seems so often that we have lost that. We've picked up our relationship values and qualifications from the world instead of according to the word of God. But we see this pattern in many of the epistles That one of the primary ways that we apply doctrine and principle and commands of the word of God is in the area of relationships. We can go to the book of Ephesians where there is great doctrine for three chapters. Some of the deepest doctrines that great Bible theologians still debate to this day in Ephesians 1 through 3. But. 4, 5, and 6, we see a lot of practical application of those doctrines, and much of it has to do with personal relationships. We see it in Colossians and how Paul deals with very significant and important doctrines and then fleshes that out in practical applications regarding relationships in Colossians 3 and 4. We can go to the book of Romans And really for 10-11 chapters, Paul dives deep into some great theological doctrines like a lawyer who is opening up a law book and we read for 10-11 chapters great treatises on deep theological doctrines that again, some Bible theologians are still debating to this day. And by chapters 12 and 13 though, we see Paul fleshing out In practical application, often with relationships, the application of those doctrines. Hebrews 12 and 13, we see the same pattern. Really, for much of the book of Hebrews, the author, by the inspiration of God, deals with the ceremonial law and talks about the Old Testament and the application of the Old Testament with the New Testament, the interpretation of The Old Testament by the New Testament and shows the greatness of Jesus Christ and how Christ fulfilled all the law. And then in Hebrews 12 and 13, practical applications of our faith that often has to do with relationships and even our relationships with one another within the church. It's incredible. It's a fascinating study to see. How doctrine always demands duty. Principle always results in a pattern of behavior, practice. How we have a belief system that should be biblical, that should be right, that should be according to the word of God, and it results in right behavior. And James is continuing to put this pattern and continuing to deal with this. This knowing and this being and this doing. And he's going to deal with another practical matter. So James has been helping us live out our faith. And he deals with an area that was problematic then and continues to be a problem that rears its ugly head even in the 21st century. Here we see this issue of respecter of persons. And we see, first of all, we see in verse number one, we see a warning against partiality. A warning against prejudice. A warning against being a respecter of persons. Our faith, our faith is reflected in our attitudes and our actions toward others. Many times, and more often than not, is not our faith reflected Tested, revealed by our attitudes and actions toward others, interpersonal relationships. I don't like it when people say that the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. I don't like that statement because people are all we have. This is who we are called to love and to serve. I don't like it when a preacher, a person in the ministry says that or even... Uh, An average congregant, I don't like the fact that people talk about life being better or the ministry being better if it weren't for the people. No, people are whom God has called us to minister to, to serve, to love, who God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live among us and to die for us while we were yet sinners. So we all have to battle preconceived ideas and viewpoints that we have to check, that we have to evaluate by the Word of God. We must do that constantly, have to evaluate and check our thoughts and our ideas, our preconceived notions, viewpoints. We have to evaluate them and check them, hold them accountable to the Word of God. We have to fix our wrong views sometimes. When the word of God confronts us about a wrong view, a wrong idea, a wrong value system, a wrong perspective, we must fix that wrong view, that wrong value system, that wrong perspective. We see here in verse number one, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons, faith of can also be translated faith in but either way it's indicating a personal faith a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who is glorious we serve a glorious savior in this relationship with Jesus Christ this faith of Jesus Christ this faith in Jesus Christ is a personal faith and it is manifested in how we treat others in our personal, interpersonal relationships. So there's a warning against partiality, and we see an injunction. In this warning, there is an injunction, there is an order, there is a command. Stop showing partiality. Have not the faith. Hold not the faith. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is not to be held or to be lived out with respect of persons, with partiality, with prejudice. Again, James has warned us about our tongue betraying our faith. He has warned us about our selfishness and our sacrifice, our serving and our giving, and how if we don't do so in the right attitude and the right spirit, how it betrays our faith. We've talked about how worldliness betrays our faith. Well, now he deals with our partiality, our prejudice, how it can betray our faith. How we can then show by our partiality and our and our favoritism, that our relationship with God is not right. That we may have heard, but we haven't allowed the word of God to be, to mold us and shape us and to form character and integrity that then is lived out in personal holiness, in purity of life, in service and sacrifice and love for others. We see this term, this phrase, respect of persons. It literally means to lift up one's face. You know how it is, a snobby person, they kind of have that, right? Kind of stick their nose up. If it rained, they'd drown because they're always looking down their nose at someone, at others. You ever been around people who you always felt like they made you feel like, you weren't worthy of their presence. They had a way of making little comments or statements. They have a way of just kind of an air about them. It shouldn't be that way as believers. That we shouldn't have such an arrogance of our life that people feel like they have to get permission from you as you grovel, as you shine their shoes, to finally be entered into their strata, into their area. You've met people like that. We know people like that. Just kind of arrogant, always looking down their nose, it seems. That's literally the phrase respect of persons, to lift up one's face, to judge, to show special favor based on appearance, rank, social or economic status, based on race, not on character, not seeing each and every person as an image-bearer of God with a soul that needs Jesus Christ, but rather favoring or disfavoring someone based on their looks, their external appearance, their beauty or lack thereof, their physical abilities, their wealth, their social or economic status, all the ways in which we are taught by our culture to divide each other up You don't wear the name brand or you don't look as much as as good. And on and on it goes. It's all around in our culture. It's everywhere we look, everywhere we go. Money buys access. We have people who have rank and title and they use that to abuse and to lord over and to commit acts of fraud and on and on it goes. Our culture is just replete with this kind of partiality, this respecter of persons, this favoritism. And sometimes even we as Bible believers are guilty of it. Sometimes it's subtle. But when God deals with us about it, we need to repent of that and get it right. Many times we ignore moral character and integrity of an individual. We see the dehumanizing of different groups of people in our culture and around the world. And that denying their humanity or their personhood is often to exploit them, to take advantage of them, to mistreat them in some way, to have them be somehow a number, a utilitarian kind of view of people that what is it about your life that can make me look good, that I can serve myself? We see this with young men sometimes. They want a certain kind of girl that makes them look good so that she can be the trophy wife, the trophy girlfriend, and it can be vice versa. We see different groups and cliques that form, and it's based on social status and based on economic status and based on certain kinds of beauty and certain kinds of clothing. And there are certain people that maybe you know who it has to be a name brand hat, With the name brand glasses, with the name brand shirt, with the name brand shorts or pants, with the name brand socks, and by all means, the name brand shoes. It's got to be the shoes, right? I mean, that is the way our culture, it's everywhere. We're divided up in so many ways, and it creeps into our thinking, even as believers, and we find it in our churches. And before long, we're fighting over the color of the carpet and the paint on the wall, and we're taking possession of ministries and we're dividing ourselves up and looking down on others. Favoritism, prejudice violates the very character of God. Romans 2 in verse number 11, there is no respect of persons with God. Ephesians 6 and verse number 9, there is no respect of persons with him, referring to God. Colossians 3, in verse 25, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. The bottom line is, all of us are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So there's this warning against partiality. There's an injunction, a command. Don't be a respecter of persons as believers who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, do not be guilty of partiality. Do not be a respecter of persons. But then we see an illustration. Let's continue down in verse number 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment... And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? In the illustration, he uses maybe a synagogue, a church, where the Wealthy, the rich and the famous, they're given special favor, whereas the poor are told to stand off to the side or literally by sit under the footstool. It means basically sit on the ground. You're only worthy to be at my feet sitting on the ground, but off to the side, showing disfavor and dishonor to the poor. And James, Pastor James deals with this. Very strongly, very pointedly. He says, the wealthy who oppress you, who abuse you with their power, with their acts of injustice, they are given special treatment and honor. Meanwhile, the poor, many of which are humble, genuine believers. They are despised. They are shamed. The wealthy, they even blaspheme the name of God. They speak and live in ways that openly and shamefully violate the word of God. And he describes them. He talks about the vile raiment of the poor. You look at the poor and you say their clothing is dirty and shabby. But the rich, their clothing is gay. It is Bright, it is shining, it is brilliant, it is fine clothing. No, know that's an older English word that has obviously changed uh, meanings and connotation today. But it just simply has to do in that context. And the King James, it has to do with being bright, shining, brilliant, fine clothing. You look at their clothing and immediately you say, well, they're not wearing the name brand, but these people are. They're the wealthy, they're the rich, they're the famous and begin to treat people differently by those external standards superficial standards. He even says here, looking down in verse four, are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Literally, you have become critics with selfish and self-serving desires. The rich and the famous, yeah, they're going to they're gonna get the big offering. If I can get into their favor, they're going to They're going to help me out. They're going to take care of me. They're going to give me access. On and on it goes. We know the thinking patterns. It's caught up so much in our culture. It's gotten into our churches even. He even says in that verse, verse four, when he speaks of those evil thoughts and that critical, selfish thinking pattern, he even says those thoughts of evil have to do with inflicting pain on someone. How can we make the poor feel absolutely shamed? How can we make sure that we let them know they are not welcome here? They can stand in the back, off to the side, sit here at my footstool, sit on the dirty floor. We're not talking about nice carpet with air-conditioning buildings. We're talking first century, where it was probably a dirty, maybe even a dirt floor. Sit in the dirt. At my feet will we honor with special seating and special VIP press access. You know what I'm talking about? The lanyards with the big press pass. Let's bring those rich and famous people in. Let's put them on the prime seats. And you poor people, you sit in the back or at the feet in the dirt. It's a shameful, rude treatment. Respecters of persons. Partiality, prejudice. But let's make some application here. Notice, notice how much favor and honor are given to the wealthy superstars and celebrities in our culture today. Who live immoral lives, they celebrate sin, they blaspheme our God by their very words and their actions while they perform on stages and platforms. And people buy their tickets in the thousands and hundreds of dollars sometimes just to be there and have the experience. They're treated like heroes or heroines. They are adored like gods and goddesses, yet they mock our God and his word. They live in open sin. They portray or sing of sinful, lustful pleasures and many times openly advocate for the flagrant violation of God's moral standards. Yet they get more honor. They get more respect. They're held in high esteem. They are thought of more highly than God-fearing faithful servants of the Lord who've never sold a ticket except maybe to some high school ball game or little league game. Think about the time, the money, the adoration, the attention that many of these wealthy God blasphemers receive from professing Christians. Think about that. Are we not then guilty of James chapter 2, of having respect of persons? Godly, faithful men and women are often overlooked. They're ignored because they aren't rich. They aren't famous. They aren't successful. Right? Sadly, what happens? Church, the things of God, they're boring, mundane, uninteresting, why come to church? and go to a concert. I can jam. I can have smoke and lights. I don't want to use all the different phrases. I don't want to get carried away. But you know what I'm saying. Come to church, sing, sit next to that person. Ooh, I hope that certain person that came in late, that always comes in late, I hope they don't sit next to me. Let me move my hymn book and my Bible over to make sure it looks like no one can sit there we guilty of that the youth group the kid comes in maybe a little different maybe comes from a different background and the youth group they kind of get into a corner and ignore the kid that's coming from a little different background sometimes rumors fly things are said that aren't true and biases and prejudices are built but think about our value system think about how we honor People who are immoral and are ungodly. I'm not saying that we can't watch a ball game. I'm not saying we can't watch a TV show or a movie. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm thankful, mom and dad, my mom and dad, it was just a simple principle. I'm not saying we have to do this. It was a simple principle that taught me an important lesson when I was a kid. My mom and dad would not let me put posters up of my favorite ball players. I'm a sports fan to this day, but I was not allowed to put posters up of my favorite Ball players, Because my mom and dad said you can hit a baseball like them, you can shoot a basketball like them, you can throw a football like them, but I don't want you idolizing them because their lifestyles most of the time are immoral and ungodly. You can have their baseball cards, their basketball cards, you can watch them on TV, you can in, in try to emulate them in your play, but we don't want you putting them up on the walls of your bedroom because we don't want you to idolize their lifestyles. It was just a simple little lesson that stuck with me through the years. They'd rather have a Bible verse, a little reminder on my door before I went out of remember now your creator in the days of your youth than to have a poster of Will Clark up on the wall. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. But it taught me an important lesson, simple little lesson about value systems and who we honor and who we dishonor. Many of the poor, he says here in James 2, he says many of the poor, while well, well, the rich, they they, they they blaspheme the name of God, they oppress you, verse number 6, they draw you before the judgment seats, they commit injustice against you. Some of these Jews who had now scattered abroad had suffered under the hands of the wealthy, the famous The powerful, they had suffered persecution in racial and ethnic bias and prejudice that had resulted in them having to leave their homes. Some of it was downright religious persecution, but some of it was ethnic and racial against the Jews getting kicked out of various places and having to be scattered abroad. They had experienced that by the hands of the rich and the powerful and the famous. And he says, you've despised the poor, verse six, who oppress you, who commit injustice against you. They blaspheme the worthy name by which ye are called. But notice what he says about the poor. He says, hearken, verse number five, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? Many of the poor were genuine believers. They had received Christ as their savior. They are rich in faith, they're heirs of God's kingdom. They may have experienced physical poverty, but they saw their spiritual poverty and trusted Christ. They saw themselves as beggars of spirit, poor in spirits. Yes, physically they didn't have much, but it helped them see their spiritual poverty. So they became beggars in spirits. They became poor in spirits. They cried out in dependence upon God in saving faith. Though they were physically poor, they were now rich in faith, having received Christ, having become obedient followers. Yet they are given seats on the floor and they are shamed and despised. They are dishonored. He is saying to them, this not so to be. This ought not so to be. First Corinthians 1 and verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's actually warnings, isn't there, about the rich? About the love of money? Which is the root of all evil, the root of all kinds of evil? Matthew 19, 24, Mark 10 and verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. A camel through the eye of a needle. Any of you know how to sew a button on or stitch a tear? Some of you are good seamstresses, can do some up, uh, not, not, not upholstery, but alteration. Some of you are good at that. Some of us, we have no clue what we're doing when it comes to a, a needle and thread. But a camel go through the eye of a needle? And the apostles even asked, how is it even possible then for a rich man to be saved? And what did Jesus answer with? He said, it would be impossible if not for God. He said, all things are possible with God. What does, the, what does the rich man have to do? He has to quit trusting in his riches. That's what riches do. They deceive us. We become dependent upon our wealth. We become dependent on our riches, our nice clothing, our position, and our power, our fame. And we forget about God. We ignore God. We to do it our own way we depend on our own selves and the problem with a self-made man is he worships his creator if you know what i mean he worships the one who he thinks made him himself the rich man is warned about his riches his love of riches think about the rich man and lazarus who died and in hell lifted up his eyes being in torments it was the rich man because he depended on his riches he gave crumbs to lazarus who now was in Abraham's bosom, a name for heaven. He's in the glory. He's in the presence of his Savior. Though he had nothing, he was eating the crumbs off the rich man's table. But the rich man depended on his riches and forsook God. Lazarus had nothing physically to speak of, but he had faith in God. He had recognized his sin. He had turned from his sin and looked to Christ in saving faith. And he woke up in Abraham's bosom, the rich man, in hell, in torment. It is often the rich that God despises because the rich depend on their wealth. They have no need for God. But the poor often see their own unworthiness and cry out to God for mercy and salvation. What about the Pharisee? The Pharisee mocked the publican. I'm not like that man. Who walked away having beaten his chest, begging for forgiveness, Who walked away forgiven? The publican. He saw himself as a sinner. The Pharisee, he was above that. And he walked away unforgiven on his way to an eternal hell unless he repented and turned to Christ in saving faith. Are there examples in the Bible of rich people getting saved? Sure, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe Nebuchadnezzar probably got saved, but Naaman got struck with leprosy and had to dunk himself seven times in the dirty Jordan River. He had to come to a place of humility, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar had to basically be turned into an animal and graze on the ground for seven years before he finally repented. We see an educated man, Saul, who had a lot of spiritual and religious pedigree. Saul, who on the road to Damascus was blinded by the light of Jesus Christ and came in repentance and faith and was gloriously saved. An educated man, a fairly wealthy man who got saved. And God used him greatly. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. We talked about them in our study of the book of John. Yes, can a rich person get saved? Sure. But oftentimes it takes a hard knock for them to quit depending on their riches, their fame, their title, their power, their position. Because it becomes an obstacle, becomes a stumbling block between them. And saving faith. But it's the poor. Who often see their unworthiness. And cry out to God for salvation. That's. James's point here. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Which he hath promised to them that love him. Yet you treat them like dirt. And you give the. Special favors to the rich. If we're not careful. If we're not careful our prejudices. Our biases toward people unlike us, will cause us not to love one another like we should, not to minister to one another like we should, not to serve one another like we should, and actually sometimes just plain overlook the needs of others. James makes the rubber meet the road, doesn't he? He deals with it. He's concerned about it. He's concerned about this attitude getting into the church, this attitude of partiality and prejudice of respecter of persons, If we're not careful, we'll get into our social status clubs, our cliques. We'll begin to elevate ourselves. We'll expect special treatment or become possessive of ministries and demand things to be done our way all the time with little regard for the needs of others or the good of the whole ministry. We have to be so careful. Down in verse number 9, let's go down actually to Verse 8, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. These verses remind us that loving our neighbor is a royal law. A royal law, meaning it comes from the King of Kings. As a royal decree found all the way back in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, love thy neighbor. We're already in love with ourselves. We're commanded in Matthew 22 and verse 39 to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Taken from Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Do we not already love ourselves? Oh, we are in love with ourselves. We have no problem thinking about ourselves. The fact that I think of myself more than anybody else throughout the day makes me a pr- proud, selfish person to my shame. It takes a consideration, like consider it, count it all joy. It takes a willing decision to get our minds and our thoughts off of ourself and to think of others. Philippians 2, And the example there of Jesus Christ and the principles of Philippians 2, let not every man... Think on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought not Robert to be equal with God, but took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And then we know the rest of that chapter and how it talks about how Christ, in the form of a servant, as a man, went to the cross for us. The humility and the example of Christ, this loving our neighbor, as ourselves, is a royal law. It comes from the king of kings as a royal decree. To violate this law is to be a transgressor of the law, he says. We don't think of this as a big deal. It's not murder. It's not immorality. It's not one of those really heinous sins. But he says in verse 9, if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced or convicted of the law as transgressors. To break one link in a chain is to break the whole chain. We will say a chain is broken. The dog, our dog's collar, there was a little ring that broke off one time. We said the collar was broken. One, one, one ring, one piece of the, the link, one link in the chain is all it takes. And we say the chain is broken. One violation of God's law and we're guilty of breaking the whole law. We become a violator, a transgressor, a lawbreaker by breaking any one of God's laws. Now there are a lot more that we break and we're sinners by birth, by nature and by choice. But even one sin is enough to condemn us before a holy God. This sin of partiality, this sin of prejudice, it has borne bad fruit in our nation, hasn't it? It's even borne some bad fruit in our churches and, of course, around the world. I mentioned again earlier, and I talked about it last week in Sunday School, but critical theory and all of its accompanying manifestations redefines sin overlooks sin it even calls the sin of partiality and all of its accompanying immoral applications it calls the sin of partiality good and necessary for reshaping society it's the mood that we are in so that people will excuse the savage barbarian acts of murder and mayhem upon innocent jews We have people who are defending that, and they are in places of power in our nation. They deserve to be kicked out. But It's that critical theory mood that's so pervasive that's even in our churches now. It gets the problem of sin wrong. It offers no salvation. It only has a cycle of discord, division, debauchery, and ultimately destruction. It's just another name for the sin of partiality that has been a problem since sin entered into the world. And we know that that temptation of power, of lording over people, of taking advantage of people, it is inherent in sin. It's inherent in the lies and the deception and the murderous ways of Satan himself who wanted to usurp God's power and authority. And he's all about destruction. And he seeks whom he may devour. That's why we must be so vigilant and guard ourselves against this sin of partiality. Some people, some people, they use this passage to teach another form of the gospel, a social gospel. There are people who reference this chapter, chapter two, and try to excuse a social gospel emphasis in churches. Emphasizing social and economic reformation while de-emphasizing or ignoring altogether the need for repentance of one's sin and of genuine saving faith in Christ, which ultimately transforms the life and renews the mind and makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. So let's take heed. Let's listen to this injunction. Let's listen to this warning, this this illustration in James 2, and let's be aware of, of this sin of partiality. Let's love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's give them the gospel. Let's give them the truth. Let's edify one another and love one another according to the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us. Lord, keep the sin of partiality, respect for a person's prejudice. Lord, keep it out of our church. Lord, keep it out of my life. Lord, help us to check our hearts and our minds. And evaluate our lives constantly by the word of God that we are not committing this sin of partiality. Being a respecter of persons and adopting the values of this world. And honoring the wicked and the sinful and the godless. While shaming those who are rich in faith, who have inherited the kingdom and are faithful and obedient. Lord, help us to love one another to build each other up according to the truth and to edify one another. Help us to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even today, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. We're thankful, Lord, that you are not a respecter of persons because all of us are are unworthy sinners who need your grace, who need your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross our sins and who rose again and that you offer to us the free gift of salvation and Lord we thank you for the fact that all who call upon you in saving faith whosoever who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and we rejoice in this truth Lord I pray as we sing this song that you do your work in our hearts in Jesus name we pray Amen. We'll close as Jake comes and leads us 433 if you'll stand and find